Welcome everyone. My name is Michael Harrison. I'm a senior partner in the Energy Resources and Infrastructure Group at Ashurst. This is the next in a six-part series of podcasts on renewable energy disputes. In this series, our market-leading renewable energy disputes lawyers share with us lessons learned from acting on renewable energy disputes. In particular, how to avoid disputes, and if they do arise, how to manage them. In the last part of this podcast series, we heard from partners David Wadham, Emma Johnson, and Jeremy Chenoweth about some of the trends in renewable energy disputes, as well as what the future might hold in terms of disputes in this area. Today, I'm pleased to speak to partner Georgia Quick and senior associate Harsh Harry Haran about the types of issues that give rise to disputes in renewable energy projects and tips on how to avoid them and if they do arise, how to manage them and to, to prevent their escalation. Georgia and Hush, welcome. We're gonna to continue to use um, the development phase, construction phase and operational phase as the framework for this podcast. Starting with the development phase, Harsh, can you tell me about this phase in general in the context of a renewables project and in doing so what kind of issues and disputes do you find typically arise? Certainly Michael, thank you. So I think like all large projects the development phase of a renewable energy project is probably the most crucial. Primarily it would involve obtaining the relevant licenses, permissions and consents that are required for the project. Now, obviously this depends on what you're building, what part of the world you're building it in, but the sort of things that I'm talking about are environmental approvals, planning consents, land use agreements, access approvals, and such. Now, obviously without this critical stage of a renewable energy project, um, you know, the project cannot proceed. You need to have the required approvals. But this is not always a straightforward process. And that's particularly in the case of renewable energy projects, because they're typically in green field locations that require a lot of space and that can have an environmental impact, which may be difficult or uncertain to assess. A really good example of this is wind farms. And difficulties in obtaining the required permits can lead to delays in approvals. And as a consequence of those delays, there's a knock-on effect all along the contract chain because deadlines are not met and expectations are frustrated. Naturally, this will lead to disputes. And those disputes take on an interesting dynamic and become particularly challenging and complex because of the trophy of flagship nature of these projects and because governments are trying to meet their net zero targets. As Jeremy mentioned in the last podcast, this introduces a political dynamic and a level of public scrutiny that often doesn't exist in other projects, particularly at this phase of development. Thank you, Ash. Given that those are issues that we're aware of and we know occur not infrequently, have you got any advice as to how you might avoid those issues or at least manage them if they arise and take the form of a dispute? I think you know, the probably the obvious and short answer is that there needs to be significant forward planning and due diligence before committing to the project. And you would know this better than anyone as someone who regularly advises clients on this. 
you know, spending time and effort upfront in understanding what the regulatory and legal landscape is for a prospective project is time and money well spent. And, you know, understanding the regulatory and legal aspect means not only knowing what permits will be required for a project, but also the timescales when they can be expected to be received, what sort of terms and conditions might be imposed, what rights you may have if your permits are delayed, denied, or then subsequently varied by the government. And the one thing that we're increasingly discussing with clients investing in renewable energy projects outside the home jurisdiction is how to structure their investments to ensure that regulatory risk during the development phase can be minimized. And where possible, that means both engaging in effective investment treaty planning, which I know was covered in the last podcast, but where an investment involves a long-term contract with a state or a state-owned entity, a concession agreement or a PPA are again good examples, you could have some sort of contractual stabilization clause. And as you'd know, Michael, these clauses essentially seek to fix the relevant regulatory regime applicable to the investment, or at least the effect of that regime to give certainty to the investor by preventing the government from subsequently varying the regulatory landscape. The certainty is crucial for the development phase or for the entire project, given the significant investment that is typically required. The point's well made, Harsh, and um, there are other, obviously other issues that arise, um, but um, I think that, that kind of covers the, the key elements in relation to the development phase. So turning now from the development phase to the construction phase, um, Georgia, this is clearly uh, an area of key risk and the, and the construction period itself is an area of probably the most, the highest risk um, in projects until um, completion is achieved and operation is achieved. In the same vein as we've looked at with, with Harsh, um, what are the type of disputes that you come across on renewable energy projects most uh, frequently? Thanks, Michael. Certainly it's fertile ground for disputes and um, we're pretty busy at the moment in our um, disputes practice. The dispute issues that you see are fairly similar to some of the standard um, large project disputes. Invariably, time, cost and quality will come into play, but there are some other more unique aspects uh, to the renewable sector. I I like to say that there's a quite unique intersection of contracts here that um, for a disputes lawyer, as I say, provides fertile ground. So you see you have the EPC contract and any subcontracts, you have connection agreement and interface works contracts, you have a PPA or offtake agreement, invariably finance documents, perhaps a joint venture agreement, and then a flow-on um, O&M agreement. So there's, there's a lot of different contracts that are intersecting um, and a lot of scope for interface issues and disconnects. Now, if you add all of those contracts to the added complexity um, and the sensitivity of connecting to a a, a national grid, then you have quite a lot of areas for dispute. What you will always see where new technologies are being developed um, are are issues with the development of those technologies. They often don't perform, as you would know, quite as um, the parties will all have hoped. There have been a lot of technological advances in the renewable sector, and we continue to see some of those uh, causing challenges during the commissioning and performance testing phases, which will have a significant time and cost consequence. So it might be uh, that we're talking about offshore wind 
turbine foundations, um, perhaps failing to comply with the industry standards for corrosion protection. It might be a boiler that can't tolerate the chemical makeup of the feedstock in a, a biomass plant. And when these things happen, um, the knives will quickly come out in terms of allocating responsibility for the delay and cost consequences. Now, I touched on the issue of the heavy regulation, but we've really seen that as a big issue. Uh, we've got heavily regulated industries and, a, and a, a, a crucial need to maintain grid stability. And what you have is new and often disparate energy sources, um, and in Australia, constantly adding to the grid. So the modelling that's required is changing every month. Um, and the registration and commissioning processes have taken much longer, um, up to a year longer than proponents would have expected. I mentioned uh, the connection agreement as one of the suite of contracts in play. Sometimes it's not obvious who's responsible for the works done under the connection agreement as opposed to the works done under the construction contract. And we've seen some interesting disputes arise in relation to that. Um, a final issue is getting reliable information. So a lot of the information necessary to do the modelling to, in the first instance, design the renewable project, and in the second instance, to connect to the grid, um, may not be forthcoming in a timely manner or um, in a, as complete a manner as proponents need. Um, regulators have been overrun. Um, they haven't been as responsive as parties have hoped, and they've um, often... Uh, required additional equipment to ensure stability. Um, that's led to parties testing force majeure and change in law causes in particular. So that's what we're seeing a lot about. Finally, and I think I'm taking up a bit too much time here, but there's um, lots of different types of disputes arising. Um, the, the simple fact that, and this is similar to Harsh's point, these renewable projects are often being um, built in remote locations, which really adds to the complexity. Um, some of the environments, off offshore wind, for example, you really can't think of anything much more challenging than building in those sorts of environments. So invariably, that will lead to disputes. Thanks, Georgia. And I can certainly reiterate the risks that arise in relation to connection to the grid. As Georgia said, it is critical that roles and responsibilities are clear in relation to that connection. And as more renewable electrical energy is built out, whether it's solar or wind, um, or any other form of energy, um, that connection and grid stability is going to be key. So it's likely to be an area of continuing disputes over time. So clearly there's significant scope for disputes during the construction phase. So in your experience, Georgia, what are the ways to avoid or at least to minimise um, the impact of disputes um, if they do arise? If I could avoid disputes entirely, I'd be a very wealthy woman, but there are certainly some strategies for minimising disputes. Um, obviously, claims and circumstances will change and claims will arise on projects, but really it's how you manage to deal with those claims and avoid them escalating into significant disputes. There's probably three key areas that I, I would suggest that parties focus more on. Um, the first is due diligence as to their contracting parties. Uh, so that applies to joint venture parties. Choose your joint venture parties wisely. Consider whether there's an alignment of interests um, and objectives in relation to the project. As a principle, choose your contractor wisely. Do your due diligence as to their experience, as to their, the depth of resources that they have available for this actual project. 
um, and as the contractor, understand your principle and the market in which you're going to be operating. Uh, so you understand the regulatory environment, you understand who will be calling the shots at head office and all of those dynamics. The next uh, area of key focus is very obvious and in your key Ballywick, Michael, is understanding the risks and understanding, clearly discussing them and looking at how they're allocated. I think it's easy to look to pass risk on to a counterpart, but when where disputes arise is where they've often been unfairly allocated to parties that can't really manage the risk. The net result may end up being good if you've passed the risk on, but the, the ride may be more unpleasant um, as a party seeks to recover during the project delivery phase when um, unfortunate circumstances arise. Similar to what Harsh said, Spending time up front, thinking about it properly, drafting your documents carefully will obviously avoid a lot of the problems in the first place. Now, I know for you in the renewable sector, there are no standard form model documents at the moment. And so we do see a broad spectrum of risk allocation and, and, and you really just have to spend that money up front. The third issue is to do with the administration of the contract. One issue here is making sure that there's sufficient resource to administer the contract from the outset. Quite often, parties haven't got their administration teams sort of ready to get together at the outset and they sort of fall behind early on and it, and it can actually exacerbate issues. You need to engage with your contractual parties early. You need to grapple with issues that arise as, as quickly as you can. You need to have clear and frank communication between contracting parties. And that is partially having the right forums for those discussions, whether it's you know, the on-site forum as well as the escalation forum so that people know what's happening. And also good contract administration. So that might be as a contract, but getting your notices in on a, in a, on a timely basis so that there's no need to have a dispute about whether a notice was submitted. But in fact, you can, you can actually get down to discussing what has actually arisen. And if you're the principal, making sure you're timely in responding to those notices. As far as administration, we, we kind of have a little bit of a catchphrase that says, well, we'll be firm and fair, but most importantly, probably be consistent. So your counterparties know um, how certain provisions will be dealt with and how they will be dealt with on the project. Um, really surprises are the thing that parties can deal with the least. Thank you, Georgia. That was very helpful. And again, just by way of emphasis, it is important that both parties have the right people on their, on their team at the right time and that they're able to manage and engage in relation to any issues that do rise, as Georgia says, in a timely and a consistent manner. So having hopefully navigated the construction phase, we come to the point at which the infrastructure hopefully is capable of use. And now we move into the operational phase. Now, obviously, um, the mechanics for the, the transition into operation, but also the operation itself, will depend upon the technology used. Um, but Harsh, I wonder if you could give us an overview in relation to the common type of disputes uh, that you come across in a situation where um, we're into a longer-term operational phase. You know, as you rightly said, um, this obviously depends on the technology used. And the other point to notice that the operational phase in renewable energy projects is very long. So it is very difficult to anticipate every type of dispute that might arise. But I think broadly in terms of the disputes we're seeing, there are three main categories. 
the first one that I'd like to talk about is um, in relation to political factors. Now, I know I mentioned this a little bit before, but it is something to be borne in mind because it may not be forefront in the minds of um, the participants in the project when, when they are about to embark on the venture. But political factors do often result in a change to the legal landscape during the course of its operational life. And it might be, you know, things like introduction of laws that require a percentage of the plant's personnel to be nationals or certain local supply requirements. And we are now frequently seeing disputes arise where the operator is seeking additional payments as a consequence of political or regulatory change during the operational life that's made it more expensive for the operations to be carried out. Uh, the second category is uh, probably the first in terms of chronology, which is disputes that arise from handover from construction contractors to the operation and maintenance contractors. Mostly this is in relation to quality issues. So the disputes that we see arise is where the maintenance contractor would say that certain issues constitute defects for which the construction contractor is responsible. But on the other side of the coin, the construction contractors would say, no, actually this is arising due to a failure to properly operate and maintain and therefore the maintenance contractor is responsible and these are issues that are probably more prevalent in renewable energy projects rather than any other because as georgia mentioned there are new technologies involved and the rapid pace with which these technologies are changing often um, you know result in disputes in this area so i think it's just something that sponsors need to bear in mind and they need to think in advance about how they can avoid any sort of gap where this interface risk exists. The last category of disputes that we're seeing arise is in relation to variations or rather alleged variations to operation and maintenance contracts. An example is where a maintenance contractor considers that a certain type of work goes beyond maintenance. It might seek to claim this as a variation and when it comes to sort of long-term contracts, these variations become particularly difficult to price. So that's a separate challenge in and of itself. How do you price a variation that's going to have an impact over the next decade, two decades? And obviously everyone would like to avoid variations, but I don't think that that's possible because they do inevitably arise. It is, however, possible to perhaps manage the manner in which they arise and reduce the risk of disputes. And that's by trying to agree upfront the methodology that will price the variations. So what information a contractor will be required to provide in support of a variation claim, potentially fixing levels of profits, essentially setting parameters for how a variation claim can be made and agreed. And if those parameters are set upfront, then hopefully there wouldn't be any surprises during the term of the contract. So I think, you know, those are the three main categories of disputes that we commonly see but obviously they are by no means exhaustive. Again, thanks, Harsh. That's um, very helpful. In the context of both the construction phase and also to a lesser extent, the operational phase, there's also gonna be um, oftentimes uh, disputes that arise from providers of goods, um, which are then used either in the construction of the project or during the operational phase. Now, in the context of the operational phase, that's obviously delay and non-supply type risks. 
But also one area that I think we've seen increasingly is that certainly in the COVID environment, where there has been a scarcity of some supplies, we've seen some suppliers basically requiring um, increased costs uh, and then seeking to pass those onto the project. So I just wonder if that's something that you've seen kind of play out, Georgia, and if so, how it's played out. Thanks, Michael. We have seen a number of inquiries in relation to solar panel suppliers demanding increased prices. We have also seen on a number of projects the pass-on of significant claims to do with supply and how they play out really depends on the terms of the contracts. So it will depend if contracts have a price escalation or price review clause, which will operate where there's been an increase in input prices. The operation of these clauses is relatively straightforward and it can be a good way of avoiding surprises during the term of the contract or avoiding those escalating into the future because there's no mechanism really for dealing with the price increase. Um, in the absence of the price escalation or price review clause, then we see counterparties looking at other forms of relief that they might be able to utilise, such as force majeure, hardship or change of law clauses in particular. And that, again, um, will depend on the reason for the increase in the price and the particular relief that's provided under the clause. And there's quite a few nuances to, to how you can engage the relief in uh, force majeure and change in law clauses in particular. Um, in practice, we have seen that there's been a relatively pragmatic approach taken in relation to some of the COVID-19 related issues, perhaps out of necessity that the, the parties are all facing these issues and somewhat understanding of them and there's a need to move the project forward where it hasn't been so straightforward to resolve and where the, the matters have really escalated into proper disputes is where you see parties trying to maximize the relief that they obtain um, off the back of, of, of COVID-19 triggers but perhaps using them to mask other issues um, that are at play and, and those are the ones that haven't been so capable of being resolved. Thank you, Georgia. Well, we've certainly heard, certainly from my perspective, a broad cross-section of different types of advice, very practical advice from, from both Georgia and also from Argent in terms of avoiding disputes in the first place and then managing them if they do arise. I understand that in the last podcast, the participants, Emma and Jeremy, were asked to provide some war stories. Um, I'd really like to hear some war stories from you in terms of particular challenges that you faced and um, the way in which you dealt with them heroically. Thanks, Michael. I'll take that one first. I'm going to give you a story about a very interesting dispute um, that we were instructed on quite recently. Uh, and we were instructed by the owner of a wind powered power generation complex. And we were asked to advise in relation to the termination of an agreement to operate and maintain the facility. Now, what made this particularly interesting um, to work on was were two things. One was the context in which the matter uh, or the dispute arose. The operation and maintenance contract had been entered into approximately four to five years prior to the completion of the facility. And now that completion was nearing, technology had advanced so much that the owner of the facility could get the operation and maintenance services for a fraction of the price. And what this shows is something that we've sort of discussed earlier and we've touched upon earlier is the rapid growth of renewables technology and the importance of bearing that in mind before you enter into contracts. So, so that I thought was quite interesting and it shows you how renewable energy projects are different 
from other construction projects. The second reason why this matter was particularly interesting was because of the grants of termination, potential grants of termination that we were asked to consider. And in this instance, it was the failure of the operator to have obtained mandatory government approval required for the works. Now, in the facts of the case, we found out that the ground wasn't made out. And obviously, in this case, as I mentioned before, the construction hadn't completed. So, so there was a different factual background here. But it does highlight the risk that getting the government approval to perform the requisite works or provide the necessary services can be a significant hurdle. And it is something that you know uh, participants need to be thinking about upfront so as to avoid wider disputes uh, that could have really quite significant um, consequences for the parties. Thanks, Harsh. And again, um, just underlining the point, I think that's a very well-made point in particular goes back to the to, to kind of where we started in terms of understanding the approvals that you required, but also really understanding them and how they're going to be obtained. Georgia, I was just going to um, ask you if you've got any war stories. Well, you started earlier by asking for heroics, and I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> As disputes lawyers, um, I'm not sure that um, we're often engaged in heroics. It's not, not everybody's favourite part of the job. And it's a funny one in the renewable sector because we all really like, I think it's something that our teams all really like being involved in, but obviously we're involved in the somewhat unfortunate part of, of the project. Uh, the matter that I thought I would tell you about to some extent, has has a good result because it did resolve without a full blown dispute, and so that's that's a good story. And I I would say part of the heroics is um, having a consistent approach. So part of the um, approach here was being consistent with the administration of the contract. So we supported the project team once the issue had arisen for a period of uh, at least twelve months, um, and the project team was able to be very consistent with. Um, its position in relation to a very significant variation claim. This one had a number of the ingredients that I mentioned in terms of all of the intersections of contracts. There was an issue about the connection works and who was responsible for certain equipment. There was an issue between the joint venture parties that they were able to work their way through, but it, it did add a dynamic. Um, it was a renewables project and it did require a significant piece of additional equipment and a, a very big claim for a variation and an extension of time. Um, I think the extension of time was 12 months um, and significant cost for the addition of a harmonic filter. What was interesting also is that industry practice changed in the time from the contract's inception to the delivery phase. So what was obvious now wasn't obvious possibly to the parties at the outset. And so there were some differing views from the technical experts that we had providing advice in relation to industry standards and um, good industry practice. That, that was an interesting part to it. Um, we had the issues with the regulator and information provision as well coming into play. And we had some un, you know, pretty harsh risk allocation in the contract itself to deal with. One aspect that uh, is worth bearing in mind, there's the carefully thought and the obvious risk allocation components, but a big part of what may have turned this actual dispute was some of the knock-on quantum components. So here we had a concurrent delay provision 
that was quite significant. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind that there are some other sleeper clauses that can have quite significant impact um, on the way disputes play out. And you really need to look at some of those, those practical aspects in your extension of time um, clauses as well. Thanks, Georgia. That was really helpful um, and informative, likewise harsh. I think that's all we have time for today. Um, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with Georgia Harsh or myself, our details are on the Ashurst website, ashurst.com. Our next podcast in the series covers the all-important question of which dispute resolution mechanism is best suited to resolve particular types of disputes under contracts. My partner, Dan Brown, will be interviewing our Singapore disputes partner, Michael Weatherly, and senior associate, Taman Kaizi from our Dubai office. To ensure you don't miss any future episodes, do subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast platform. While you're there, please feel free to keep the conversation going and leave us a rating or review. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you enjoy Ashurst Legal Outlook, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Business Agenda, tackles the big strategic issues that business leaders face. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges. You can listen and subscribe to Business Agenda and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.